You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, David did say to me that he was going to abbreviate the service so that I could have a full hour and a quarter to preach. Uh, For those of you who aren't used to the Scottish sense of humor, uh, you will eventually learn. Well, in the evenings we've been reading through what we call the farewell discourse of our Lord Jesus, beginning in chapter 13 and going through to his prayer in chapter 17. We've reached the beginning of chapter 15, and so we're going to read from John 15 and the first 17 verses. You'll find the passages on page 1083, 1083 of the Church Bible. And uh, it would be helpful, I think, if you have a copy uh, to follow along. And uh, if you don't have a copy, I think there are copies at the back. And uh, given the situation this morning, you might actually enjoy getting up and uh, making a brisk walk to the back there to pick up a copy of the New International Version. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. 
This is my command, love each other. Perhaps I can begin this morning with a kind of Bible trivial pursuit question. There are only three places in the New Testament where a believer or believers are called Christians. Only three places. So actually, when you read the New Testament, it's very unusual for a believer to be called a Christian. And my trivial pursuit question is, what is the most common way the New Testament describes a Christian? What is the most common way a New Testament describes a Christian? We could uh, have a kind of game show here with David Robertson as the host and people shouting out answers and we could uh, cheer, keep ourselves warm in different ways. Uh, But I wonder if you know what the answer is. The answer is this. A Christian is, fill in the blank, a Christian is somebody who is in Christ. That's the most common way the New Testament describes what it means to be a Christian. Paul, in his 13 letters, most of them uh, you can read in about half an hour, one or two exceptions, Paul describes those who are Christians uh, approximately 12 times in every letter as people who are in Christ or in Christ Jesus, or in Him. And Jesus has begun Himself to teach His disciples that this is what it means to be a Christian. In the previous section, He had spoken to them. They're very concerned about the fact that He is going to leave them, and therefore they will feel far away from Him. And He's been telling them that actually when He leaves them and sends the Spirit to them, they will discover He is near to them. He comes to indwell them. Just as He has been their teacher, just as He has been their advocate or counselor, just as He is going to make a home for them in heaven, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and He will be their teacher, He will be their counselor, And the reason the Holy Spirit comes to indwell Christians is in order that they may become a home for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the Father. And he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will realize something that at the moment you scarcely understand. He tells us this in chapter 14 and verse 20. On that day, he says, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. To be a Christian is to be somebody who is so united to the Lord Jesus Christ that Christ dwells in us, and we dwell in Him. To be a Christian, says Jesus, is to be someone who is in Christ. Often the smallest words in our vocabulary are the most difficult words to explain. If you knew that to be a Christian is to be in Christ, then 
uh, you could have given the right answer to my question, what is the most common way the New Testament describes a Christian? In Christ. And then, of course, I could have asked you the question privately, what does in mean? What does in mean? And you would probably say, I knew exactly what it meant until you asked me the question, and then I had something of a memory lapse. I always thought I knew what in meant. But what does it mean to be in Christ? And I think this is probably the reason why now in chapter 15, the Lord Jesus uses this illustration of what it means to be in Christ. The way he puts it is like this, I am the vine and you are the branches. To be in Christ is to be related to the Lord Jesus in a way that is similar to the way in which branches are united to the vine. And in the course of his teaching, Jesus draws out a a series of aspects of what this union with Christ means. And I want to uh, focus on four of them for us this morning, three or four minutes each, I presume. The first principle is this, that our union with Christ is the source of all our spiritual fruitfulness. It's the source of all our spiritual fruitfulness. Jesus tells us, verse 3, that he wants us not only to be clean through the Word, but fruitful in our lives. He cleanses us, he is saying, in order to cultivate us. He brings us into fellowship with himself in order to make us fruitful in our Christian lives. Indeed, he says in verse 5, apart from me, you can accomplish nothing spiritually. Unless we abide in him, verse 4, there will be no fruit from our Christian lives. So, the first principle is this, that it is as we are united to Jesus Christ, as the life of Jesus Christ becomes our life, as the Spirit of Jesus Christ is shared with us as we are united to Him, that our lives begin to bear fruit spiritually for the Lord Jesus. And of course, that covers everything in our Christian lives. It covers what Paul calls in Galatians the fruit of the Spirit, the transformation of our character to make us more and more like the Lord Jesus, and it also refers to the impact of our Christian lives. Jesus says, I want you to bear fruit, and I want that fruit to remain. I want the impact of your life on others to be powerful and to be evident. But this transformation progresses in our Christian lives, this impact that we make on others. And I think it's important to remember that Jesus is speaking 
communally here as well as individually, not just about the individual impression our Christian lives make on others, but the impression that our life together as branches in the vine makes on our society. He's saying this is only possible. It's only possible to be fruitful in the Christian life if you actually are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul puts it like this, doesn't he, in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, Literally, he says, if any is in Christ, new creation. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. He's really saying that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you're united to Jesus Christ, you become part of a whole new world order altogether. And Jesus is teaching His disciples here, this is, this is absolutely fundamental if you are to understand what it means to be a Christian. You are somebody who is in Christ, and because you are in Christ, the power of Jesus Christ to transform you will work and change you and make you fruitful. The second principle he enunciates is this. If the source of all our fruitfulness is to be found in our union with Christ, then that union with Christ means that we will be pruned by the Father. Look at what he says. He says, the Father is the gardener. And what does a gardener do? a gardener cuts off, verse 2, every branch that bears no fruit. Those of you who are gardeners understand what this means. Those of us who aren't gardeners, we've seen gardeners do this. They cut away the fruitless branches, but they also prune the branches that bear fruit in order that they will bear more fruit. Now, if you are a gardener, you think nothing of this. You you take out your pruning knife, and you, if you're an expert gardener, you, you cut away. I remember being in the vineyard of a friend I had in uh, Southern California uh, after the pruning season, and seeing these vines cut back, and uh, all across the ground, the, the pieces of wood that were, they were just lying there. And uh, it seemed to me almost destructive. But when you're a gardener, when you are someone who is an expert in uh, viticulture, then uh, you understand what you're doing. This is what you need to do if there is going to be more fruit. You need to prune the vine. Think about it from another perspective, though. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Think about pruning from the perspective of the branches. Imagine uh, you are a branch, and you see this figure coming along, sharp knife in his hand. And then suddenly this figure starts slashing away at the branches next to you and then begins to cut into you. Well, it's clear, isn't it, what Jesus is saying. He is saying, in order that we may bear more fruit, 
the Father has much in our lives to cut away. And that can be extremely painful. Union with Christ not only means that we are progressively being transformed into his likeness to bear fruit, it means if that is to be done, the pruning knife will begin to work and to cut away everything in our lives that would prevent that fruit bearing. Every time we come to church, we go around the circle down there and see the destruction that has been wrought by the demolition experts. In order, we hope that whatever arises from the rubble will be glorious, magnificent causes to stand in awe of the glory of contemporary architecture, we hope. But that cannot take place unless the demolition expert is working. And this is how the Christian life is in union with Jesus Christ. There needs to be demolition and there needs to be reconstruction. Christ wants fruit-bearing. But if there is to be fruit-bearing, then there needs to be this pruning. And the marvelous thing that he says here, uh, just following up what David said a moment ago, the marvelous thing about being a Christian is what? That you become a child of the Heavenly Father. And the marvelous thing about being under the pruning knife as a Christian believer is that you know that pruning knife is in the hand of your loving Heavenly Father. He makes no mistakes. Every surgical cut is performed by your Father. Imagine yourself as a child and you're going to have major surgery and uh, you're wheeled into the theater for the major surgery and uh, the masked stranger who comes in that you know is going to put the knife into you and open you up, looks down on you, and uh, underneath the mask you see that these are actually the eyes of your own father. And you know that every cut he makes, every pain he causes, he does in perfect love and to give you health. So the first principle is that union with Christ is the source of all our fruitfulness. The second principle is that union with Christ means that we will be pruned by the Father. And the third principle is this, that our union with Christ, like the life of the branches in the vine, if they are to bear fruit, our union with Christ needs to be nourished by his word. Beginning of this section, Jesus says that we are cleansed by his word. But then you notice he goes on to enlarge on that in verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, then you will ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. And this will be to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit and show, so prove yourselves to be my disciples. 
the vine and the branches together bear fruit, but in order to do so, they must be nourished. Remember how Jesus said when he was tempted in the wilderness, man, he was referring in that instance particularly to himself, Satan be gone, this man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He was speaking about the Old Testament Scriptures, of course. And you see what he was saying. He was saying, my nourishment is found in God's Word. And this is what he's saying here too. He is saying if we're going to grow as Christians and bear fruit as Christians, then our nourishment needs to come from God's Word. It needs to dwell in us. If my words dwell in you, then by those words, your life will be transformed and you will begin to bear fruit. Now, of course it's true that we need to study our Bibles. Of course it's true that we need to obey the Scriptures. Jesus speaks about obeying His Word. But what's particularly interesting, I think, in Jesus' teaching here is that Jesus believes that it's not we primarily who do this work. It's God's Word primarily that does its work. We need to digest it the way we need to digest food, but it's the food that nourishes. And he's really encouraging his disciples, isn't he, to allow his Word to dwell richly in them. This is a point Paul makes in Colossians chapter 3. He says, if you want to grow spiritually, then the secret is this, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Worth pausing to ask ourselves, isn't it, if we are bearing much fruit, if we are, if we are conscious that in some measure we are growing as Christians, and if not, why not? And perhaps this is actually the answer, that we're not being nourished by the Word. You know, if a spiritual physician from a previous age had come and observed the present age of church life, uh, they, I think, would have been scratching their heads and saying, don't you understand why you are so anemic as Christians? Understand why you make so little impact on the world as Christians? And if we were to say, well, no, we're not really very sure. To somebody from the first 19 centuries of the Christian church, the answer would be obvious. It's this, that we think we can live the Christian life successfully on the basis of a miniature diet of the Word of God. That true? Uh, they tell me sermons should be 12 minutes long these days. Is it any wonder we are so untransformed if we have digested so little of God's Word? Um, 
You remember how Paul did it in, when he came to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. He gathered the Christians together every single day of the week, probably through siesta time, 10 o'clock in the morning till about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And every single day, he was pouring the Word of God into their lives. And the result was, as we find in the New Testament, that the Word of God spread from the city of Ephesus all around to the surrounding regions. What was their technique? What were they doing that we would need to do to make an impact on our world? Well, actually, what they were doing day by day was being strengthened and nourished by the Word of God and letting the Word of Christ dwell richly in them. That's a real challenge, isn't it? Um, You know, our attitude to the Word of God says everything about our Christian lives. And we're we're so interested in the how do I do it these days that we often neglect the fact that the biblical teaching is God will do it. God will do it in you. But the instrument He wants to use is His own Word. And sometimes we're like foolish children. And it's almost as though He wants to say to us in a kind of exasperation, will you not listen to what I'm saying? And the truth of the matter is that as spoiled children, we sometimes say to him, no, I'll find my own way of being fruitful as a Christian. Thank you very much. And what Jesus is saying is, there actually is no other way to be fruitful as a Christian. And when you read the biographies of Christians who have been fruitful, the one thing they all seem to have in common is that they absorbed the Word of God. That word for you this morning from the Word of God, that actually what you most need is to get back to digesting the Word of God and let it dwell richly in your life. And that leads to the fourth thing. Our union with Christ is the source of our fruitfulness When we're united to Christ, we will be pruned by the Heavenly Father. If we are to grow in fellowship with Christ, we need to be nourished by the Word. And fourthly, the chief fruit of being united to Christ is love. I don't mean the John Lennon love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. Love, love, love. Love is all you need. I mean the kind of love that Jesus describes here. Greater love, he says, has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And he's saying this as an incentive to them to love one another. He's saying, look, you're united to me. My life flows through you to bring forth fruit, and the most evident fruit, the choicest of the grapes, will be that, like me, you love one another in such a way that you lay out your lives for one another 
and you would be willing to lay down your lives for each other. And when we do that, he says, then the Father will give us anything that we ask in Jesus' name, because he knows that we love like Jesus, and therefore he can trust us like Jesus. And this, for the disciples, I think really meant something. Uh, Some commentators believe that when Jesus says at the end of chapter 14, uh, come now, let us leave, that the disciples actually left, and that as they made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, they passed by the temple in Jerusalem. And it was uh, something they saw in the temple of Jerusalem that was the connecting link for Jesus to begin to speak about the vine, because uh, over one of the gates in the temple in the first century was an enormous vine with clusters of grapes that one of the first century historians says some of these clusters of grapes were as large as a man, huge clusters of grapes. And uh, speculative though it may be, it's certainly very striking, isn't it, that if they passed by that uh, great tableau in the temple and saw one of these huge clusters of grapes, and Jesus is now saying to them, I want you in this world to bear man-sized fruit, man-sized clusters of grapes that would make people say, as we say about this amazing giant vine, wow, that's really amazing. And this, of course, is uh, the life of the church, isn't it? This is, in a living church, what often strikes people when they come among us, that there there is a wow factor in the way these people relate to each other. I've heard people say that they've come among living Christians and absolutely hated what they believe, but been drawn to Christ because they have seen, as people have seen throughout the ages, these people love each other in an entirely different way. What is the source of that love? And Jesus is saying, the reason Christians love one another in this way is because they are united to him who loved us and laid down his life for us and no longer calls us servants but actually calls us his friends. There's one last thing I want to point out that I think is so marvelous about this passage, that Jesus actually stands back from what he's saying to say to us, now, I want to tell you why I'm saying this to you. I want to tell you why I'm preaching this message to you, he's saying. Oh, if you don't look down at the passage Why would you think Jesus is teaching his disciples these things? Well, if you look down, you'll find the answer in verse 11. He says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy 
may be complete. John's gospel loves double entendre, statements of Jesus that when you read them, you're not quite sure whether it means this or whether it means that. And this is one of them. Is Jesus saying, I've told you these things so that you may become a source of joy to me, so that my joy may be in you, just as we might say to somebody, you are the joy of my life. Or is Jesus saying, I've told you these things so that the joy I have in my fellowship with my Father may be in you? Perhaps he means both. Both are actually true. He teaches us these things in order that we may become the source of joy to him. That he could say, you are my friends. You are therefore my joy. But it's also true, isn't it, that as we are united to him, his joy as well as his peace becomes ours. And the result of that, he says, is that your joy will be full. I wonder if there's something preventing fruit-bearing in your life and mine. I wonder if there's something stunting our growth in the Christian way. I wonder if we feel to some extent or another. We know we should be joyful because Christians are supposed to be joyful, but actually we are fairly joyless. Well, we need to get back to the beginning, don't we? We need to rediscover who we actually are as Christians. We're united to Christ. If we are in Him, then We've entered into a new world altogether, part of which is expressed in the life of our fellowship together. And when we begin to understand, goodness me, I am somebody who is in Christ and are nourished by His Word and experience the pruning of the Father, then the fruit begins to grow and the love begins to flow. And we understand all over again why these wise men who wrote the Shorter Catechism began by asking this question, why are we here? What is our chief end? What is the goal of this life that otherwise would be aimless? And the answer, well, we're a bit warmer now than we were earlier on. The answer is that we should glorify God. And ah, now the paradox that the world can never understand. The thing that makes the Christian an absolute mystery to somebody who isn't a Christian. Our destiny is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Something that you could say this morning, because you're united to Christ. One of the things I've done through most of my life, if people have come to the church door and shaken hands and then let the words slip, I really enjoyed that this morning. 
And you know, if you're brought up in Scotland, you feel almost guilty about saying that. So always hold the hand very tightly because I know they're going to say, oh, I shouldn't really say that, should I? We're not meant to enjoy it. And I'll hold the hand as tightly as I can and look into the eyes and say, why on earth not? We've been made to enjoy him. And so this is why we're here. This is why we preach for more than 12 minutes. This is why, uh, wonder of wonders, we have more than one service on the Lord's Day, because we know that when the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, we bear fruit. And as we bear fruit, we know we are Jesus' friends. And as Jesus' friends, our lives, now we are Scots, most of us, Actually, just most of us, I think. Maybe 51% of us here are actually Scots. And so we don't waste energy by showing the joy we experience in our hearts. We don't waste energy. But if we're Christians, we have not only a peace that the world cannot give or take away, but says Jesus We have his joy in us, and because of him, our joy is full. Well, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? And if you're not in Christ, are you wondering, how how on earth do I get into Christ? The answer to that question is by believing. Actually, the New Testament uses that language. It says that you believe into Christ. Jesus Christ. And as you do, he says, welcome to my world. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that through his Holy Spirit, our eyes might be more and more opened to the privilege of our new identity and that through your word and by your Holy Spirit, we may individually and especially together bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. Fill us, we pray, with nourishment that our lives may be full of his joy. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.